Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Copland Talk. This week, we got another two-for-one special for you. We're going over chapters 24 and 25, but we're going to start with 24, called Flight Down the RNL, where, you guessed it, they're still on the boat. We're with Matt, Rand, and Tom. They're on the spray with Captain Bale Domon. He do be there, too. Um... And that's pretty much it. There's, It's a shorter chapter, but there's some interesting stuff going on. Lily, do you have any first impressions? I do. Um, chiefly, with the interesting stuff, is we get another Rand ballsy dream. Except this time, Rand is learning how to lucid dream a little bit. And we'll get into more of the details of the dream later, of course. But he is able to think within the dream, understand that it is a dream. So he's, he's learning, he's doing it. Rand's he's, he's just a great one. I also noticed that this chapter is describing the cover of the book. Yeah, it is. Bit. I have a whole section of notes on oh, that. Really? Rand okay, goes cool. a little crazy. He does, yeah. but I, I was interested because when I got this book, um, I noticed Rand obviously is on a ship. Well, I, first of all, I assumed this was Rand because the first couple chapters, that's the main character. And so we actually get the scene where he's on the uh, the mast. We'll talk more about this. He looks this. so pensive. He, I know. He's just, I mean, he's just looking out for Egwene. He's looking out, you know, at the shore trying to find his true love, of course. Um, and then I just had my last thought was alternative title for this chapter really is just training to be the world's best gleeman starring Thumb Maryland and featuring Dagger Matt and Acrobat Rand. Right? Yeah. They've each got their own set of skills. They really do. So with that, if you want to do a summary, then let's go. All right. I got some, some, some for you. Let's get some sums. Rand is dreaming again. This time, Balsamon hasn't found him yet, but is searching for him in a maze. We've got all the Ballsy favorites, boiling black streaked clouds and smooth stones that turn out to be human skulls. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Rand oh, yeah. remembers that you can find your way out of a maze by always turning in the same direction, which accidentally leads him directly to Balsamon. And even Balsy is kind of surprised to see Rand up so close. I thought that was funny. Oh. Um, but surprisingly, Balsy doesn't hurt Rand. Instead, he chooses to rant at him again about the eye of the world, calling Rand his hound and threatening to choke him with the great serpent. Yeah. It's a little kinky. Uh, Rand As escapes be, this between those by, two. I know there's some tension there. Uh, Rand escapes this by realizing this is all a dream. He shouts it and gets out, but ends up in this darkness again, surrounded by mirrors that reflect himself and falls on until eventually their faces seem to merge. Ooh. And then he wakes up. Now we're back on the spray, making haste slowly, which I thought was a great way to describe it, down the river. Captain Domon is pushing the crew hard, and they're starting to talk of mutiny. Gelb, the man who Rand accidentally trampled, is trying to turn the crew against Rand, Matt, and Tom, but to little success. Tom begins teaching the boys as if they were really apprentice gleemen, which helps distract some of the ship's crew from thoughts of mutiny, so that's good. And on the fourth day of their journey downriver, we get the scene from the cover of the book, Rand is chilling on top of the ship's mast without a care in the world, and everyone else thinks he's crazy. <laughs> Rand comes down from the mast to find Matt alone, holding a dagger that he took from Shotter Logoth. Matt is worried that the ship's crew might try to steal it, so he makes Rand promise not to tell anyone, not even Tom. Matt being Matt, 
And the chapter ends with Tom chastising Rand for worrying everyone, and Rand is shocked when he looks up the mast again and wonders to himself, what's really happening to me? Light, what? He has to find out. He has to get to Tarvalon before he really does go mad. This whole chapter is mainly about the dream and then Rand doing his little acrobat tricks on top of the mast, right? Like, there's not too much else going on, even though we cover a couple days here. Well, I guess why don't we start off talking about the dream? Yeah. Just a quick description, because we go through a couple different settings in this dream, similar to the other dreams that Rand has had. It's all very, like, strange and not quite real life, but some kind of dream, like, it's not quite right. So the first, the dream starts off with Rand in this maze-like area with stone bridges and railless ramps that don't seem to need supports, with nothingness below him. The air smells of dirt and decay, and it clings to his skin like oil, and light seems to come from everywhere but nowhere. And when Rand thinks, he, the air turns to gel around him, which kind of prevents his movement briefly. So he realizes slowly that in order to continue through the maze to get away from Baalzaman, who's chasing him, he can't think about anything. Otherwise, he gets stopped and, like, he needs to keep going. So that was, like, one really strange thing, I think, in this kind of, like, dream. Like, that's really what meditation is. You're trying to not think. I was wondering, too, the description in the book when I was reading it for the first time sounded similar to me as his first dreamer, the first really described dream back in chapter Stag and Lion. I can't remember the type, the number, but Stag and Lion, where it was these like uh, rocks that seem melted, but I guess I'm understanding the description is a little bit different, um, but the similarities with the light coming from everywhere and nowhere and just like the general smell of, you know, death and you get a sense <laughs> that it's bad. But yeah, that's definitely something I picked up on that Rand is now at a point where you know, each time he gets a Bialzaman dream, it's not being fully described, but I guess it's safe to assume that, do you think he's getting these dreams every night or is it like kind of once every few days type of thing? Like, I feel like it's once every few days because I, I'm i assuming that Robert Jordan is describing every dream he has of Bialzaman to okay. us at this point. I don't, but like, maybe not. They are very important. Rand's at a point now where he's able to, I, I called it lucid dreaming, but maybe that's not exactly what it is. But he's able to, one, understand that it's a dream, understand where he is, understand what he needs to do to get out or to sort of maybe find Bialzaman or to find kind of the point of the dream so that he can leave it type of thing. Um, and I think that would suggest that he's been through dreams like this a few more times than yeah. maybe I, just the I one time. That. No, I think there's a couple things different from this dream compared to the last one. Okay. One, Rand, for some reason, seems to know that it's dangerous to think. Even before the air turns to gel around him, he like thinks to himself that he knows it's dangerous. You can't think in this place. And like, yeah. That's obviously just left up in the air. We don't really know why, besides the fact that it seems to hold him back. Like, maybe he has had a dream like this before, and he's just slightly remembering that that was dangerous in the last dream. Um, another thing that's different is that Balzaman is searching for him instead of being in that room and talking to him right away. He's like, this This whole dream is about, like, trying to get away. Like, they're in a maze, and Balzaman is trying to navigate the maze to Rand, and Rand's trying to navigate the maze to get out it's a kind of like a different scenario there. 
But so it, it's like a little bit different, the setting, right? Like he's not intentionally confronted by Balsamon this time. It's like Balsamon's having a hard time finding him for whatever reason, or Rand is dreaming that. Mm-hmm. So the second part of the dream Once he leaves, once Rand leaves the floating stone area, he ends up in this dry, hot thorn hedge maze with those black streak clouds overhead like we saw in the cave dream. Um, And Rand, again, he knows without realizing how he knows that he's been here a long time. And he again knows that it's dangerous to think or to stay still for too long. And he's seen Balsamon here too. And there's just this this quote here. As he's going through the maze, he says, There were three openings in the high wall of thorns. The way curved out of sight, Baal could be around any of those corners. There had to be two or three encounters already, and he had escaped somehow. So there has been, like, a period of time where we weren't following Rand, but he has come across Baal already, and somehow he got out of it, but we don't know how. Mm-hmm. And we only get to see this one encounter where Rand is like, oh, I know the way out of the maze. It's so simple. Just keep turning right. And then like three corners later, it's Balsamon right there. And Balsamon's just like, I am ready to rant. Let me tell you about the eye of the world and how you're my hound. Right. And I'm going to choke you out. So. <laughs> Damn. Now, I also thought it was interesting that Rand within his dream is able to think about Matt. And if Matt is in the maze, I thought that was such an interesting. I, yeah, I guess you mentioned it too, that, um, Rand knows that Matt has had a dream like this before. And so he's like, well, if Matt's having the same dream, maybe he's in the same setting with me instead of Matt just having an independent dream. I thought that was so interesting because I think a part of dreaming is or when you're trying to build up to lucid dreaming, you're trying to find tells in the dream that make it a dream. There's no clocks in a dream. There's no sense of time. There's no Mm -hmm. look at your hand in a dream. I used to try this shit all the time. R- really? Okay. I never really got into it, but like, you know, you hear people who try to do it, but I thought that was interesting that Rand is able to think in such a reality about Matt in like a very logical way. Like, okay, well, if he's having this dream, then maybe he's also going to be in this maze. So Rand, I continue to be impressed with his character. You know how much I love the character moments, but I think him trying to control himself in a dream is, it's really amazing, honestly. And him not being kind of scared by ballsy but but really confronting this uh and as we see at the end of the dream having this kind of revelation of like you know are we the same person what do these mirrors mean like you know and obviously Rand doesn't know the meaning of these dreams but he's able to understand that they're they're significant enough to try to control himself in it I think that's so cool. I wish we would have stayed in this dream other than with, with <laughs> Thumb Maryland. Rand but, you is know. just in purgatory trying to get away from Balsamon forever. Well, I mean, but maybe that's kind of like the metaphor of maybe this book, right? That Rand is kind of trapped within this sort of pull between we don't know if the dark this dark one is is real. Is it a product of, of Rand's imagination? I even wrote in my notes that like, is this a product of Rand's fears or maybe even his hopes? You know, like we don't really know what Rand wants right now. And I think that these dreams obviously are really important, but I think they have more to do with Rand's entire journey in this whole book. Yeah, no, I think that the main takeaways from this dream is that Balsamon is still pursuing the boys. He's having trouble finding them and Lan- <laughs> Lan. Rand is still 
you know, trying to deny this to himself and also yeah. deny Balzaman. Like, when Balzaman shows up, he, he says, how long do you think you can evade your fate, your mind? And Rand, I mean, he, you know, to his credit, he's probably denied him a bunch of times already just off the page. But in this time, he just says, light, help me. He's, like, muttering, light, help me, light, help me. And then Balzaman goes off and he's like, the light will not help you, whatever. But Rand is still trying to... He's stubbornly still denying, even though Balzaman is trying to convince him that there is no hope for the future. Like, this is your fate. You can't get away from this. Like, how long are you going to try to run away from it? You know, there's no point. So just give up now. And Rand's like, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to touch this bush and get a thorn pricked in my finger and run away. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing, I and I guess I kind of mentioned this too, but it's just like the part at the end where... You know, there was only one face in those endless mirrors. His own face. Bialzaman's face. One face. We get it. It's one face. I, yeah, right. So, like, I, I guess that's supposed to be a metaphor for, like, maybe they're... Well, I just think, and I, I mentioned this, too, when we talked about the last dream where the rats get their backs broken, is, like, is this sort of a Horcrux type of situation? Is the Dark One within Rand? You know, how connected are they? Or is it really just because it's a dream, this is this is really all Rand? Yeah, it's the Dark One saying all these things, but it's Rand's dream, so is it, this is just Rand's imagination. So whatever he's right. imagining, it's really just a reflection of himself and his thoughts and his fears and everything like that. But obviously, the book is trying to, with very intense imagery, trying to tell you that they are connected. One face. <laughs> it's a little like hit you over the head with it for sure so I, I think that's all that i'll take from it now i'm trying to be better at just sort of taking it and throwing it over there and picking it up when i need to instead of taking right. it and it's holding on to it knowledge forever we can pick it up and use it when we need it again yep. we don't really know what this means or what's going on here at this point in the series at all so all you can do is just kind of take it in and be like okay ballsy mad ballsy want to choke Yep. Rand say dream, Rand escape, Yep, and he's fine. And then the one lasting result from this dream, though, is that at one point in the dream, Rand touches the hedge and gets stabbed by a thorn on his finger. And when he wakes up, that finger is actually bleeding in real life. So it's kind of like how in that last dream when uh, Balzaman breaks the rat's back, and Rand wakes up and all of, there was like a dozen rats with their bats, backs broken right. around the inn. Um, there's some kind of like physical reflection happening mm -hmm. when he's dreaming like this. So it's just another like point towards it being obviously important and creepy and something's going on here that's not normal <laughs> at all. Right. And so, yeah, uh, from that point, you know, he wakes up because he has some sense of reality maybe rand just kind of like swung his hand out while he was dreaming yeah. and like hit a nail in the wall exactly and that's how he like hurt himself and that's and but his brain interpreted it as like a thorn absolutely and i think it's hard to explain with the previous dream because the rats were did have their backs literally broken but True. i think you're right i think that could be a way of explaining it so he's he's awake <laughs> yeah. and unfortunately he realizes that instead of being with hot ballsy getting choked out he's actually on a boat called the spray with captain domon and this guy gelb and i have a few points where the last time we were in rand's perspective was a couple chapters ago so i'm forgetting kind of where they were at in this so the book is describing that they the ship's crew 
the boat, they keep getting attacked by Trollocs. And so I have a couple points here, or questions. Were they only attacked by, attacked by Trollocs when Thumb and Matt and Rand came on the boat, or were they con- are they continuing to be attacked by Trollocs? Oh, um, no, they only got attacked by Trollocs before Rand and Matt got on the boat, and then that night when they first okay. got on the boat, and then I think it's been uh, smooth sailing since then. But Bail Domon, the captain, is convinced, even like as they're getting on the boat, that the Trollocs are chasing him. He's like, these trolls do be after me or something. Right, yes, exactly. Okay, which brings me to my next point, which is, so the mutiny aspect of it was odd to me because they seem to all hate this guy, Gelb, who during his watch let on Rand and the group. So the crew is angry at Gelb instead of these random strangers. It's because he was sleeping on his watch so he didn't warn them. Like, he was supposed to be the one looking out at night to, like, raise mm-hmm. the alarm if something goes wrong. So I, they apparently don't care that much about the three strangers, besides the fact that, like, they're disposable if something, if they weren't a mutiny and didn't want anyone to know about it. But I think they're mostly, it seems like Gelb might have something of a history of not being the best worker. That supports it a little bit more. Because for me, I was thinking, why wouldn't the crew... Like, the newcomers should be the people they like the I least. I know, the people who came on with the Trollocs, but Right, no. who are bringing Trollocs, but I guess this crew is so paranoid anyway. They seem to be an odd bunch. They seem to kind of get over themselves, and, and Thumb Marilyn is, like, you know, making jokes and being a Gleeman. I just, my thoughts on a Gleeman and the thoughts on the Gleeman in, for the people of this world are very different. Obviously, they're very entertained by this person and enjoy him. Well, it's a world without TV or internet, so all you've got is a guy who makes TV in your mind. Which is which is great. But then somehow, I miss the part where Matt and Rand are actually apprentice Gleeman. Or yes, that's their okay. cover story. I don't- when did that start? A couple chapters ago, when they first got on the boat, um, when they were dealing with Bail Domod, and Tom was explaining that, like, why are they out in the middle of nowhere? Tom was like, oh- I'm a Gleeman. These are my two apprentices. We were out, like, here looking for treasure or for stories or something. I kind of forget the actual explanation. But he he introduced them as apprentices. So they have to kind of follow through on that. It was just, like, one line in a chapter. That's why. But, um, so now they're kind of trying to keep up appearances for that. Um, So Tom has to teach them. He's teaching them how to, like, I think play the flute a little bit. Which is funny because the crew is cringing at it. It's really bad. Uh, I think they're learning to, like, juggle or something, and then obviously Rand is apparently really great at acrobatics. We're gonna talk um, about that. We're gonna talk about that in a second. So the, the mutiny aspect is because Bale Domon, the captain, thinks that he's being chased by Trollocs, so he wants to get down the river as fast as possible, and I, this river, or this boat, I'm pretty sure is, is like a, it's not a rowboat, but they, like, row to get it to move. Okay, so, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, so he's forcing the guys to row, like, constantly for long hours for with no breaks or something, so they're okay. getting tired, and, like, he's pushing them, so they're like, fuck this, there's no Trollocs chasing us, let's mutiny, because there's no reason for us to be pushed this hard at this point. Right. Okay. Um, and that's why, like, Tom kind of distracting them with happy thoughts and happy songs, and even the the bad flute with Rand. Um, right, keep the morale them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, but besides that... Um, we get some more descriptions of the world as we're going down the river. Mm-hmm. Sights along the RNL. So we yeah. get some statues 
This is on page 338. In the middle of the first day, the RNL ran between high bluffs that stretched for a half a mile on either side, and for that whole length, there are. The stone has been cut into figures, men and women a hundred feet tall. I missed how tall they were, actually. Um, with crowns pr proclaiming them as kings and queens. No two are alike. So there's these really ancient statues, but some of them are less ancient than others, so I guess they've been carved over time for whatever kings or, or queens were in the area, maybe? I'd just like to have a, a quick side note. I think this has this happens a few times. This definitely happened with George Martin in Song of Ice and Fire. I know what you're about to say. Yeah. The height of things is very yeah. skewed. It's uh, narratively and uh, in a literary sense, it's nice to write 100 feet, 200 feet. That sounds better than like, it's 37.5 mm -hmm. meters. <laughs> but 100 yeah. feet is literally a football field. High. I know. And so yeah. later... Bale Doman mentions this metal tower. He says 200 feet. That is obscenely high for a place that probably is built up. In the background of the, the book, which it does, you know, the artist did a good job of showing how absurdly tall that would be. It, it's up there. Um, but my reference to Song of Ice and Fire is the, the iconic wall is 700 feet tall. It's not... Yeah, even to exaggerate, like, 700 feet, like, George, what were you thinking? I'm sorry. Exactly. And also in, there's another uh, city called Old Town, and the tower there is supposed to be taller than the wall. The height of things is just ridiculous <laughs> if you really think Apparently, about it. Yeah, they have better architecture than us in the modern day and age. They figured out they do. how to lay a good foundation. I guess they do. So it made me think of that when things were just being described 100 feet, 200 feet. It's a fantasy series, I get it, but let's just scale it back to like 30 feet. I know, even 10 feet would be like really tall. Exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, so we got some cool statues of old school kings and queens. And like Lily just mentioned, we get this tower of metal that's apparently 200 feet tall. And sailors apparently use it as a marker for the way to Whitebridge. They say it's 10 days until they get to Whitebridge at the pace they're going. So that's a little bit of like a moment of orientation for mm -hmm. us so we know how how far along they have to go in their journey to get to where they need to go. And of course, Matt, when he hears about the metal tower, assumes that there's treasure inside, of course, because what else could be inside a giant metal tower? Of course. But Bail Doman says, like, you know, there's... it's Nothing can make a scratch on it. It's just shining steel, and there's no way in or out. And, like, whatever. If you want to talk about treasure, though, he talks about oh, a couple yeah. other crazy things. Um, stranger than the metal tower... He says on a sea folk isle called Tremalking, which mm -hmm. I don't think we've heard the term sea folk yet. No. There's a stone hand 50 feet high sticking out of a hill, clutching a crystal sphere as big as this vessel. So uh, maybe another scale thing again. It's a big crystal sphere as, as big as a ship. And we get a, a little bit of info on the sea folk. This is just a little baby sprinkle of information. Mm -hmm. They care not for they care for not but sailing their ships and searching for the Coromor, their chosen one. And that's all we get. So they're yeah. they're basically the pirates, but not full pirates. They're just ship sailing peoples mm -hmm. of this world. We also get some info on what are you smiling at? Sorry, I just thought of like the <laughs> please cut this out. The Veggie Tales. We are the pirates who don't do anything. <laughs> we just stay home and lay around. And if you ask us to do anything, we will tell you we don't do anything. I'm gonna keep that in. <laughs> I'm losing my mind if you can't tell, but that's what I thought of. I mean, it may or may not be accurate. I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> 
Um, and then finally, the last like wonder of the world that we get a little nugget of information on is in the Panarch's Palace in Tanchico. Tanchico is another large city, another like capital city of the continent that we're on. Doman says it was built during the Age of Legends, the palace itself, and within it or on it, there are depictions of animals that, quote, no living man has ever seen. So some kind of crazy old school animals. And inside the palace, they have the, like, bones of all of these old animals' skeletons on display. And Rand says that they've also kind of dug up some large, strange fish bones in the Two Rivers once in the Sand Hills. So, ooh, a little old school, like, I wonder what those animals might be or, like, that no living man has ever seen. No, right. I love that Rand's retort was, like, a child can draw something no man has ever seen. It just makes me think yeah. of, like, the terrible drawings that you did as a kid with all the legs in a line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was funny. Yeah. It's like, it's not scary, whatever you're describing. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a big old list of other stuff, but we don't get much information on it. Um, so I'll just leave it there. So... Why don't we get into the cover picture moment where Rand, I think this is like four days into their trip, Rand is on top of the mast. He's climbed all the way up to the very top and he's sitting on what he describes as the blunt end with his legs wrapped around in the stays. So here's a term that I learned in this chapter, the stays and the forestay. Yeah, I think thank like you for this picture. Ropes. Yeah, <laughs> I included a little sailboat picture. And the forestay is the rope that holds the mast so it doesn't fall backwards, is what Wikipedia says. Okay. If that helps clear the picture in your mind, I hope it does. It helped me a little bit. Maybe we'll tweet out this picture that I'm referencing here um, for anyone else who's also confused about the the tiny details that no one else cares about. Um, that we That's get stuck what we're on. here for, constant tiny details that make me lose my mind. Hi. Hi, my name is Julia, and I'm obsessed with tiny details. Okay, so Rand is up on top of this mast, and he's looking down at the boat. He's thinking it looks like this little spider crawling along the river or something like that. He's having a great time, honestly. He he's yeah. like, he's chuckling when he's looking down at the boat. Uh, he's staring at the riverbanks flowing by. Well, right, because that's kind of the whole reason he is up there in the first place, because he's looking out for Egwene and Perrin um, and the others. And he kind of says it like, you know, I know I'm not probably not going to see them. Like, I'm just hoping that, you know, they made it to Whitebridge. I don't know. But like, just that for the chance to see Egwene. Hey, Rand, just a quick pro tip. Next time you see Egwene, just mention that to her. It'll make her feel nice. I know, right? That you're looking out for her, but instead what you're going to do is shame her for her braid. So, (laughs) but I I think that's uh, important to note that the whole reason that he's up this high and being weird is because he's just trying to get a glimpse of really home, of a familiarity, you know. But he's having a really good time while he's doing it. He thinks people look so funny when they're looked at from above, and apparently he's spent at least an hour staring at the people on deck and chuckling to himself by this point. Um, and he's he's having like a moment like he's saying that the weight seemed as if he were still except for the swaying back and forth and the banks slid by slowly trees and hills marching along to either side he was still and the whole world moved past him he's like this is his real like adventure moment that he's enjoying right now this is leo on the the top of the titanic moment the tip yeah yeah And then at one point, on sudden impulse, he unwraps his legs from the stays, 
bracing the mast and held his arms and legs out to either side, balancing against the sway. And for three complete arcs of the mast, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. he keeps his balance like that. And then suddenly it's gone. And he realizes that this is a little dangerous, not holding on to anything on top of a 50 foot tall mast, you know. And I like this this description, arms and legs windmilling, he toppled forward and grabbed the forestay. Like, he just realized what he was doing and is like, hold up, hold on. No, I would like uh, to read the quote. This is to showcase Rand's athleticism. Swinging his legs, so really picture this in y'all's mind. Swinging his legs up, he hooked one knee over the thick line that ran from the mast to the bow, then caught it in the crook of his elbow and let go with his hands. Slowly, then with increasing speed, he slid down. So what he's describing here is pole dancing or pulling, which is an extremely hard exercise if anyone has ever done that. And I am very impressed because I've taken a few pulling classes and I know how tough it is to sort of get your legs and your knees in a correct position to hold your body up. And he's just doing this. So that's what I was thinking. And He's got some innate talent. He, he needs does. To take Rand, I this. am impressed. The amount of leg strength that you need to have, the amount of trust that you need to have in your body uh, is incredible. So, And the lack of a fear of rope burn on the way down. Exactly. And the heights, <laughs> like he's doing it all. And I think it's only until after. And I think this is how uh, courage works or whatever. You just do things. And then only after you realize like, oh God, that was... I know he has a moment where he like he almost falls over when he looks up at the mast and was like how tall is that again oh my god and I loved this moment where Tom is so concerned about Rand because he's been up there for a while like at least an hour I'm assuming like a couple hours at this point yeah and everyone's staring at Rand and Tom climbs almost the entire way up to be like hey I think it's time to come down now just saying you know don't do anything crazy right this second you know just try not to follow me haha <laughs> it's everything's light and funny yeah. because you're about to die and please no but and then Rand, that's when Rand decides to just slide down and Tom's probably like well what the fuck now I just have to climb down <laughs> this was pointless well doesn't he also he slides down and then he does like a tumble yeah to, to try to kind of like stick the landing it's just yeah, he, it is a performance acrobat. yeah it really is yeah no and that's kind of what makes it okay with the crew because yeah. tom has to go around convincing everyone like aha this was just part of his training definitely on purpose uh, as a gleeman so don't worry about that he's not crazy don't worry about that but once he gets down on the boat we just have um to kind of round out the chapter one little mat moment yes. where Surprise! Matt has taken a dagger from yeah. Shotter Logith, and he's being a little weird about it. He's very protective over it. Um, to put it lightly, he's being protective. <laughs> Matt says, It's your fault that I have this dagger, yours and Perrin's. The two of you pulled me away from the treasure, and I had it in my hand. Mordeth didn't give it to me, I took it. So Moraine's warnings about his gifts don't count. And I just wanted to point out that this was kind of foreshadowed in the Shadows Waiting chapter back on page 274 if you have the trade back like we do. Remember when Mordeth became the balloon man and Matt was hiding behind a pile of gold and quote clutching a dagger snatched oh. from the trove. Look at that. So that was there, but uh, we didn't realize he took it until just now. Okay. Yeah, Matt is sort of almost Gollum in this sense it's like he's holding this thing he's going crazy and is kind of how I see it and there's a small moment here where Rand 
tries to ask like have you been having dreams and matt tries to be like whatever man he's like have you or have you not he's like yeah i have i'm not talking about it though like clearly matt is not uh handling these dreams the same way rand is and i think that's also an interesting point to note i think to the point of matt and captain doman talking about the treasure it's like is that sort of matt's main interest now getting more treasure he's sort of being seduced by this mythical treasure the life of a pirate getting rich he you know rand talks about the two rivers and you know almost scolding himself about not thinking about it as much not thinking about tam i think it's interesting in his own head he refers to tam as tam and not his father yeah so that's still something rand's thinking about but rand you know has this feeling of i want to go home i want to think about that and i think matt is totally removed from that he's like i oh yeah no we'll go home of course for sure but he doesn't want that anymore no it's not on his mind i would love as you know uh, a Matt, a Matt central uh, chapter, kind of really figure out what's going on in his head. Cause it seems like he is very uneasy. I don't even think he trusts Rand that much. No, he's talking about not trusting anyone. Yeah. Which is fair. I mean, I think he's been the most affected by the lack of information that uh, Moraine and Lan are not giving them and being constantly scolded by making decisions, just trying to figure out where they are going on adventures. You know, he was obviously wrong for going after Mordeth, but he's just trying to explore and figure out his new surroundings, you know? And I think he is losing his mind. Maybe a little bit, yeah. No, and he, he even thinks that they might be the only two left alive from Emmons Field. Right. And that's what he says. And Rand has to be like, no, Matt, they're they're alive, definitely. Like, we have to hope that they're alive. At least I think Rand is trying to convince himself that they have to be alive, like, because they don't know. Um, and Matt's like, oh, yeah, of course, whatever. But he only says that after a minute. And, mm-hmm. oh, oh, he's talking about... Rand mentions that they could sell the dagger for money because this is a jewel-encrusted, ruby-hilted dagger. Like, it's got to be worth a lot of money, like, more than they've probably ever had in their life. And Matt is obviously reluctant to give up his treasure and is like, oh, of course, if we have to, just don't tell anybody until I say so. (laughs) We'll see where that goes, but Matt's kind of, like, off in his own treasure world at this point, I think. Right. Now, the last thing I want to mention about this is that... Thumb Gleeman is talking to them about, oh, well, Rand, you know, you performed that stunt. I think that's going to play well in the various cities. And he names a bunch of places that they can go to. And I was wondering, is this Thumb sort of playing into this fake cover story? Or does he really think like, hey, you know, let's go to different cities. Like, fuck Tarvalin. Like, let's just play around. Clearly, you guys can be great Gleeman. Maybe we can find some treasure for Matt. You know, let's just have a you know, a trio situation. So I'm kind of wondering what's next for them. If it is true that they're just going to travel to different cities and perform. Um, No, thank you. I'm going to be out. I would not mind if we took a little break from the group right now. Before we recorded, I mentioned to Julia that it seems that Robert Jordan is at a point with Rand and his group where they need to sort of pause their plot. They're on this boat. They're just traveling along. Not too much is happening in terms of where they are or, you know, the plot moving forward. So it's just a quick check in with it's them. A, yeah, it's a quick check in. Exactly. See, seeing what's up with with Rand. But if we don't go back to them for a couple chapters, I'll, I'll be OK with that. It doesn't seem like a lot's going on there. Um, we just know uh, Rand 
is just continuing to do Rand things. Matt is pretty on edge and Thumb Gleeman is the most consistent ever. So he just Very keeps true. doing things like that. So if you'd like, I can get into my uh, Kaplan talk and then we can move on to 25. So moving along with, with Matt, this chapter to me is foreshadowing something really bad is going to be happening to Matt because he's on edge. He's not trusting anyone. Even Rand can't really get a grasp on him and be like, hey, hey, dude, like, it's okay. They're alive. We'll go home. It's okay. And I think he's really affected by all of this that's happening. And he loves the adventure part of it, but he doesn't know what's going on. I think the fear of being chased by Trollocs is really getting to him. Obviously, he's having these dreams about the Alzamam, doesn't know how to handle that. I think he's scared and just wants to feel some level level of protection, um, maybe with this dagger. Also being in a setting on this ship, he doesn't know anyone. Like As I mentioned, it's hard for him to trust anybody. No one, this maybe is a lesser point, but no one's really focusing on him. You know, they're focusing on Rand, doing whatever Rand's doing. So I am concerned for my boy, Matt. We know him as this, the funny guy in the group, the comic relief. He's doing all these pranks. You get none of that in this chapter. He is not no, happy. He is not full of true. humor. So something is off. And I hope that he gets better, but I fear that some bad shit's going to go down. Uh, always a prediction, Thumb Gleeman, can he die? Just p- please, just die. That is the most consistent prediction. I, that's all. That's just a quick, quick uh, death. Goodbye. Maybe Matt is just goes a little bit wild with the dagger and just knocks out Thumb Gleeman. It would work with the cover story. Gleeman, as we know, are very violent and it kind of works with the Sith. (laughs) It's a rule of two. Uh, There can only be two Gleeman. True. So Matt and Rand can only be the Gleeman of the, the premier Gleeman of the world. So I think it would actually play into the story quite nicely if Matt just kind of to All the liver of thumb is interesting theory all right with that let's get into chapter 25 called the traveling people i would say julia just go right ahead with your summary because my initial reactions were pretty much just like it's too much so go ahead <laughs> okay all right so before we get into the summary i'll introduce a couple of the new characters we meet we meet rain uh, aka Mahdi, aka the leader of this group of the Tinkers, aka the Traveling People, aka the Tuatha Th- tu- <laughs> the Tuathaon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's described as a wiry man. He's gray-haired and short. We also meet Ela, Rain's wife. She's a plump woman, as gray as Rain, and a head taller. She has a motherliness that reminds Perrin of Mistress Alvir, Egwene's mom. And finally, we have Aram, the grandson of Rain and Ela, about the same age as Perrin. He moved, he's described as moving as if he were about to begin dancing, and Perrin immediately dislikes him because <laughs> Aram reminds him of a fuckboy from back home. Yeah. Um, which is hilarious. Um, and oh, before I forget, this chapter is from Perrin's perspective. So we're leaving Rand and Matt and Tom behind. Yeah. Now we're back with Perrin, Egwene, and Wolfboy Elias. So, to get into the summary, Perrin, Egwene, and Elias and his three stuffed animal wolves are all traveling through the woods on their way to Camelin. The Evans Fielders are not happy. Egwene and Bella are both in deep denial of their fear of the wolves, and Perrin still hasn't learned that it's a bad idea to point it out when Egwene's feeling anything less than confident. 
Perrin is also trying to ignore the fact that he's growing more aware of the wolves. He can tell where they are at this point, if they've left to go hunt, and when they're returning. He's not happy about that. They travel for three days, and in this time, Perrin actually hasn't dreamed of Baalzaman at all, unlike Rand and Matt. And on the third day of travel, they come upon the Tuatha'an, aka the Tinkers, and their campsite. Elias seems to know the leader of this group, Rain, and they share an unusual greeting before being invited to join the Tinkers for dinner. Egwene gets romanced a little bit by the Tinkers' local fuckboy, Aram, and spends the night dancing with him. Rand who? We also learn <laughs> that the Tinkers follow the way of the leaf, which basically means that they're pacifists and will not commit any act of violence even in defense of their own lives. We also get some interesting news that's been passed between Tinker groups for about two years now. Apparently, a dying Aiel has given them a warning. The Dark One means to blind the Eye of the World and slay the Great Serpent, and the people, capital P, must stand ready for he who comes with the dawn. And that's where it kind of ends. So, more lore dumps this episode. Uh, I mean, chapter. <laughs> more people that we meet. Perrin is kind of left on his own while Egwene goes off and does her own thing. And Elias seems kind of uncomfortable, but also seems to know these people for a while. Before we get into anything, I have one fun moment that I wanted to point out where... Egwene is trying to bully Elias into <laughs> mm -hmm. the saddle to ride Bella uh, before realizing that it's a bad idea to fight with a wolfman bear pig person. Right. <laughs> um, it's not going to go well. He just stares at her and she ends up backing away and getting on Bella, which, you know, I understand. And I quote, Elias was looking at her, just looking with those yellow wolf's eyes. Egwene stepped back from the raw-boned man and licked her lips and stepped back again. Before Elias turned away, she had backed all the way to Bella and scrambled up onto the mare's back, which I would probably have that same reaction if he was staring at me like that, so. I think, though, um, how he described Elias last episode, to me, I don't find him scary at all. He just is like a weird emo boy. So, right. actually, when I was reading this and they the descriptions of Egwene, like, kind of opening her mouth and licking her lips, I was like, she doing? something with the one power is she doing something like that so i i understand that reading it now this is uh, more fear-based but to me elias does not oh, scare yeah. me or he doesn't seem threatening at all because of how in my head how we sort of sussed him out of just this yeah. like weird emo skinny jeans boy like yeah. here are my friends it's here's my I mean, mangas yeah, it's technically so incredibly off base from what this <laughs> character know, actually is, I but I I can't get over how funny that picture of him is to me. Like he's <laughs> just he's got the like emo haircut with like oh, the yeah. bangs covering his eyes. He he dyes it jet black and he only talks to his wolf friends and he hates other people and exactly. like when you annoy him he stares at you like through like looking right. through his forehead like down and you're like, Okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna back away now. Like Alright, dude. I get it. <laughs> Yeah. A quick question for you. Where are they in this? Where are they? That's always... They're in bumblefuck nowhere. Because They're they've been the traveling woods. for three days. And they are on the way to Whitebridge. They haven't gotten there yet. So I have to assume they are... They're actually they... not going to Whitebridge. They're going straight to Camelot. Ah, oh, shit. Right. They are. I remember. Okay. Yeah. So they... And how it was described as they're going south. So how... F there Are they... I'm looking at the the map at the beginning of the trade back book are they in the area called the K 
power lane grass. Is that kind of safe to say? Or are they more I think close so. to white? I think they're around there because when they came upon Elias at first, he said that they were gonna, they would get there like a hundred miles north of Camelin. So they must have been kind of angling north into the the grasslands area. But there are like still pockets of trees within there so maybe not fully in the grasslands or something i think that makes sense because one they came upon elias who is a known hater of other humans and cities so they're not going to be around cities and then they're coming upon these traveling people who are uh also pretty much a cult uh and so they're not going to be around cities or people and they're kind of described as they are sort of nomads they don't really have a set home they continue to travel around and they live in brightly colored wagons as it's described and oh, yeah, they love their colors they yeah apparently can the can thumb gleeman join this group he would get along great okay <laughs> he would fit in yeah he would they they would love him so yes they come upon these people as i explained to julia pre-recording i assumed the traveling people the title of this chapter just meant you know, Egg, Perrin, and Elias, but no, it actually means an entire different group with their own history and their own way of the leaf and all this other stuff. And I, the glossary helped me a lot for this, but as I explained to Julia, when they got to the Isle Waste lore dump, I pretty much stopped listening because I just would like to stay with Perrin and his thoughts. I find him extremely interesting and I want to know more about his wolf thoughts, his hesitancy with that, his his dreams with Bialzaman. But as Julia said, he's trying to not think about that. And we're in his perspective, so we're not going to think about that. Yeah, Robert Jordan does a good job of, I think, evoking the feeling of whatever character your perspective is, perspective is from in this chapter. Because, like you said, it, it the whole wolf thing is really interesting and brand new and like it's totally different from like Egwene and the one power and stuff and so we want to know more but Perrin is actively trying to not focus on this right now because he's still in denial that this is happening to him and right. he just wants to push it away for as long as he can until it becomes impossible to ignore so we're we're getting little tidbits of him kind of becoming aware of the wolves. Like um, he says, sometimes the three wolves that remained faded from his mind, but long before they were close enough to see again, he was aware of them returning. He could have pointed a finger straight at them at any time. And one interesting thing about this is that since he's joined Elias and the wolves, he hasn't had any balls among nightmares. Mm -hmm. He's had all normal dreams with one difference in them in every single dream that he has at one point in the dream there's a wolf with its back turned towards Perrin looking out watching for what might come guarding against what might come that's kind of the extent of what we know but it seems like these wolves are kind of in his dreams I don't know if, if he's just thinking about the wolves a lot or if there's something more to that um but either way he hasn't been bothered by Balsamod like Rand and Matt which is very nice for Perrin. I'm sure even though he's not sleeping as well as he could be because of the wolves, at least it's not scary furnace man who's trying to choke him out with a snake. Exactly. But this is what I wanted the chapter to focus on. I could talk for hours about this because the wolf, here's what I interpreted it as. The wolf is in his dream. The back is turned. The wolf is looking out. It's protecting him. That's what I interpreted it. It's protecting Perrin from you know, the dark one or really anything else because Rand or 
Perrin is the wolf. You know, the wolf is him. He's the wolf. You know, they're the same mm. person. And that really mm -hmm. takes me back to the quote from Nynaeve's chapter of, you know, I don't want anything to do with this, with what? Myself. Perrin is trying so hard to push away. And that's very natural. I think that makes a lot of sense that he's trying to push away from this instinct that he has, this knowledge of the wolves that is so easy to him. But I hope that he'll learn to accept it as this is this is who you are this is your protection against the dark things this power that you have whatever it may be with the wolves so i think it's very you can interpret the dream as maybe scary like there's always a wolf watching but i think it's it's protecting him this is what protects perrin ah, i wish we could go into this more but instead we have the tinkerers that's what my thought about them is it's just that they existed and I know they will probably come up in this 14 book series. I'm not interested in that. That's all I'm going to say. Why don't we get into a little backstory and just the, the general information that we need to know about the Tinkers. So the Tinkers, like you said, are a traveling people. They seem to make their money by fixing pots and pans and things like that. And a lot of people, they have like bad rumors around them because... Everyone is convinced that they like steal babies in the night because people go missing or that they steal like items from villages. So a lot of villages are kind of biased against them. And even Egwene, before they go into the Tinker Camp, um, is like, hell no, like, let's not go in there. They're going to steal everything. Just like they're, they're just as great a thief as a Terran fairy person, which is quite, quite the insult. Seriously. I missed that Terran fairy slander, honestly. It was, like, it was missing for a while. So I'm glad we got some of that. Yeah, Elias kind of immediately corrects Egwene, being like, do they steal? Sure, I guess, just as much as any other person might steal. But they're just other humans. And Egwene, I think, kind of flips on this pretty quickly. Like, once they're inside the camp, obviously she's getting a little flirty with Aram and stuff. So she seems to not have much of a problem. And Perrin, to his credit, doesn't believe those rumors at all because his blacksmith's wife, Alsbit Luhan, apparently has a pot that was repaired by the traveling people and she says it's better than new, so they're great and she likes them and so that's Perrin's impression of them instead of Egwene's like rumors. But once they get inside, there's this kind of like a greeting ritual that Elias has to go through with the leader. Elias, Perrin, and Egwene walk in and Rain, the leader of the camp, walks up to them and he says, welcome to our fires, do you know the song? And Elias has to respond, he says, your welcome warms my heart, Madi, as your fires warm the flesh, but I do not know the song. And then Madi responds, then we seek still as it was, so it shall be, if we remember, seek and find. So their whole thing is that the Tinkers are traveling around the world in search of this song. I guess so they can meet as many people as possible or something like that to try to find whatever song it is they're looking for, but it seems to be kind of an abstract thing at this point. And Elias says they don't even know what song they're looking for, and it's just kind of like, if they heard it, they wouldn't even know. It's literally a song? Is it a sign? Is it a weather event? Like, what do you think? I mean, you know, but like, what do you think yeah, I think it's just some kind of... Well, Elias says that if they are able to find that song again, then they can bring back the paradise of the Age of Legends. Yeah, so it super vague. Some kind of crazy, like, right, yeah. Super specific. All you need is the paradise of Age of Legends, and you, you need the song to have that happen. So I 
wish that it's like Mambo number five. It's like they just start here. <laughs> one, yeah. two, right. three, four, five. It's like, it's the song. We it found is. it. <laughs> yeah. You years. guessed it. That's it. It's just been passed down. And that's like from 6,000 <laughs> years ago. And they heard it on some ancient CD. And they're like, oh my God, this must be it. He's counting off towards something. I mean, as we know, our world is part of the Wheel of Time, so it's not that out of the question that it could be Mambo number five or it could be single ladies. Oh, yeah. It could be. Either one, both have an equal chance of being correct. So that's that's all I'm going to say. Hands up. Can't confirm or deny again. But I think the greeting, to me, it's like screams cult. It's like if we're doing (laughs) this, this greeting where there's like a... Uh, a script of what you're supposed to say and then what you're supposed to respond that's like okay we're doing a cult thing here and I don't mean to say cult in a a negative sense because it seems these people as they go on to explain are not violent Um, they even know the reputation about trying to convert people so they try not to do that it's more of just this is weird type of thing (laughs) they're definitely a different kind of person than what we've met so far Okay, so next point I want to get into real quick is that there are some hints dropped in this chapter along the way that Elias seems to have met. He's Well, it's confirmed he's definitely met Rain and Ela and these this group of tinkers before, and he seems to have known them for like maybe some years now. The first hint we get is when we first meet the tinker leader and he greets, Elias greets the leader and his wife by name. And there's some other moments where Rain and Ela are talking to Elias um, when they first get into camp. Rain has to double check that Elias's um, friends are going to stay out of the camp because they don't really want that. I love how like Rain is trying to be so respectful of this very strange thing. And like, just like, <laughs> I know you have your wolf friends, but like, we can't have them in the camp if that's okay. Just saying. We're not trying to fetish shame you, okay? (laughs) However, they scare our dogs. That's all we're going to say. That's all. You know, whatever. And then at some point, Hila clearly has some kind of frustration, like long-term baggage with Elias because she doesn't quite hug him the way that she hugs Egwene. It's like Perrin notes that it's she holds him kind of at an arm's length mentally and emotionally or whatever, maybe not physically. And Rain seems kind of sad about it. And at some point later on in the chapter when they're discussing, you know, the way of the leaf and stuff and Elias is kind of scoffing at it, um, Ela says, will you teach them your way then to kill or die? Will you lead them to the fate you seek for yourself dying alone with only the ravens and your friends to squabble over your body? Like she, she's clearly unhappy at the way of life that Elias has chosen for himself and doesn't Some really agree Some people don't have traditional life partners don't shame him that he wants to live with wolves and not another person that's just that's just what know, he wants Eli. to do okay Come just on. let him yeah. live okay let him live and then finally rain this is the direct confirmation that they've met before rain asks elias have you visited any of the tuathaon since you were with us last spring and then he's like you know just saying no don't worry old friend i gave up years ago hoping you would come to the way so Last spring, Elias was confirmed to be with them, and then Rain apparently gave up years ago that Elias would come to the way, which you, with these people, they seem kind of like, 
really sad for anyone who doesn't follow the way of the leaf so i would assume that they spent a good amount of time trying to convince him to right. not be with the wolves or something so there must have been time even before those years ago that he they like knew each other so there's some history here that we don't really get any more than that but it's kind of you know more character building and stuff for elias real quick just some Egwene and Aram moments. So Egwene, this whole chapter, all she's doing is getting flirted with, pretty much, God, by she's Aram. so much more than that, but okay. I know, but apparently she's hot as fuck, because every man she comes across is, like, into her. I'm into that for the show. I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, just you wait until you see. All of the actors are so attractive. Goddamn. I'm excited. Even Ela, Aram's grandmother, says, why Aram? Why? You've decided to eat with your old grandparents for a change? I wonder why. And then pointedly, like, looks at Egwene, like, <laughs> obviously, I know why you're here. Yeah. And then Aram calls Egwene the first rose of spring, <sighs> and she blushes. <sighs> and Egwene ends up defending Aram at one point, saying, I think it's interesting to meet someone who doesn't believe his muscles can solve every problem. It's, yeah. No, I mean, we've all we've all fallen for the... The weird nerd boy who yeah, who but writes like, us poetry. He's got some, like, smooth moves apparently because she's blushing at him, and Perrin oh, yeah. even comments to Egwene at one point like, "I thought you were smarter than this because even you didn't fall for Will Alcine's stupid, dirty tricks." You know, asshole back home who has all the girls fawning over him. Perrin clearly has some feelings on Will Alcine. Can we get a quick? You know, short story on Perrin, Perrin v. Will Alcine. Actually, it's not really a, a rivalry. I think it's just Perrin quietly observing the fuckboy yeah. in action. He's like, is this, is that kind of the moves on girls? That, okay, all right. So disrespect them, ignore them. All right, got it, cool. Got it, and flirt with multiple at one time and yes. convince the other ones that it's nothing serious at all. So don't worry about it. They are the one. Right, and he's just like, one. babe, because he can't remember their name. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. Um, and just a fun moment. This is kind of skipping ahead to the end of the chapter where Egwene is upset and, you know, worrying about Rand and Matt and everyone, but Perrin has trouble comforting Egwene because yeah. he's like, he doesn't know what to do, and she's just crying into his shoulder, and he thinks Rand has an easy way with girls. Rand would know what to do. I'm not like him. I never know what to say or do. Or do. <laughs> Which is just... I think everyone thinks that the other people have it, all their shit together, but everyone is thinking yeah. the same thing. So it's just... Uh, Karen, I have that. about ten examples for you that Rand has no idea how to speak to girls. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's not just you. But the thing is, Perrin is there. I think maybe if this was not... In a life-threatening situation, the advice I would give to Perrin is, Perrin, you do fine with girls. You are there for Egwene. Don't worry too much about how you are how you should be reassuring her. You're there for her. That's it. He's got tree trunks for arms. He's exactly. good. Perrin, you're doing a great job. I would like to add, Perrin had uh, another great character moment. Do you want to talk or intro this a little bit? Talking, uh, Rain talking about sure. the way of the leaf. Yeah, so at one point after Egwene leaves to go dance with Aram, um, Rain is kind of talking about the way of relief, explaining how, like, you know, even if they were to get attacked by someone, the way of relief requires that they don't fight back because they still, that would do damage to, like, their soul or something. Mm, I he love compares that. it to, like, how the axe is sharp enough to mm -hmm. cut the tree, but the tree still dulls the axe over time. So, like, doing some kind of violence still 
hurts your soul over time, even if it doesn't feel like it does a lot at that one moment. And I know you really want to talk about this kind of character moment. So what, what was your impression of this? This entire theme I loved. Yeah. So at the end, Rain says, the mighty axe does violence to the helpless tree and is harmed by it, the axe. So it is with men, though the harm is in the spirit. I think that has a lot to do with uh, revenge, seeking vengeance. It's like, who is that for? Is that for you or is that for the person? Like, what does that actually get you? Who does it help? Yeah. Who does it help? And I know that doesn't apply to every situation, but I think it's an interesting way to think. And I love this because parents' response and hearing this is he's explaining like, well, if someone hit me, I'm going to hit them back. And he says, some people think they can take advantage of others. And if you don't let them know they can't, they'll just go around bullying anybody weaker than they are. This moment is interesting for a few points. One, Perrin heard an opinion and he's like, I actually have a different one. And I think that's interesting for Perrin because this book, we're seeing him as the side character, the guy in the background, the guy who doesn't make the decisions. He is follower, not a leader. And we're seeing a bit more of the leadership characteristics come up. And one of them is being able to make decisions, is being very set in your ways and clear on your belief system. And I think that Perrin stating this out loud to someone and being like, no, actually, I hear what you're saying and I disagree with it. And here's why. I love that confidence in him. And then specifically what he's talking about in that other people think they can walk over all over you unless you do something about that. And I think that speaks to his sort of gentle giant persona of like, I am, you know, larger than most people. So I can actually provide protection for other people. He's kind of speaking like a knight would almost. And so you're getting this sense that he is a protector. He wants to help people. And so at the end of the chapter, when Egwene is upset and she is falling into his arms and he doesn't know how to protect her but he is protecting her he is comforting her just by doing the yeah. small awkward pat as it's described on her head <laughs> uh and he is really providing that that comfort that she nearly needs in that moment and he says in his head like rand would know what to do i wish rand was here but perrin you're doing it you're there and you're comforting Egwene. have some confidence have some confidence so the more we learn about perrin the more i love him the more interesting he is to me and so I hope that he'll be more comfortable with accepting sort of this wolf brain part of himself and, and things like that. But for now, we're going to pause on that because Perrin's like, I actually don't want to think about my wolf. He's stuff. not ready. He's yeah. not ready, which, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to accept that because I think that they're learning a lot. How long has it been since the start of the book? Two weeks? probably two or three weeks like I could count it out but I don't think it's been very long at all yeah so they're they're dealing with a lot and honestly they're dealing with it pretty well all things considered but for now let's talk about the Aiel Waste and the Tinkerers or whatever they brought up yeah all right well let's get into it so Rain says that two years ago the Tinkers were traveling in the Aiel Waste, which they're one of the very few people that are allowed to do this because the Aielmen are deadly warriors. They veil their faces when they're prepared to kill. They call the battle. They call battles the dance, and they're not very friendly to outsiders. They don't let too many people in their area, which is called the Waste. This is east of like a mountain range called the Spine of the World, I believe. Mm-hmm. So the Tinkers and occasionally some other, like, traders who are honest and stuff are the only people who are allowed in the eight, the Waste. Otherwise, the Aiel will probably uh, not be very kind to them. So Tinkers were traveling in the Waste at one point two years ago. They come across 
this band of Aiel women who were warriors, which freaks Perrin out to no end. He's yeah. like, I'm sorry, there were women fighting? I can't. <laughs> and they're all all women? It's not just like a couple and then some men? It's, it's all women. All female warriors. Yeah, he's still a very close-minded sheep herder. It's okay. Yeah, it's the two rivers. But the whole group is dead except for one woman who crawls all the way to the Tinkers, which is unusual in the first place because Rain explains that the Aiel seem to not really like the Tinkers for whatever reason. They've tried to interact with them in the past, but the Aiel kind of avoid them and just stare at them from afar. But here's this woman who's dying, and she crawls over to the Tinkers and gives them a warning. She says, Leaf Blighter means to blind the eye of the world, lost one. He means to slay the great serpent, warn the people, lost one. Sightburner comes. Tell them to stand ready for he who comes with the dawn. So there's a bunch of mm-hmm. capitalized words in this. Leaf Blighter and Sightburner are Aiel names for the Dark One. So you can just replace that with the Dark One. And the Lost is what the Aiel call the Tinkers. We don't really know why. <laughs> and the Tinkers are kind of surprised that the Aiel seem to have so much contempt for them. Because the Tinkers themselves call anyone who leaves the way of the leaf a lost person Mm. and it's a very sad thing to them like if anyone decides to i guess give into that violence or whatever that they think kind of damages their spirit they're lost to the tinkers but now here are the aiel calling tinkers lost ones and so they're really hurt by that so that's one point maybe it's more of a term of endearment it's like they're they're lost but it's not a bad thing they're wanderers is maybe I don't know. The Aiel people don't seem that affectionate, so never mind. True. They really don't, no. (laughs) But this warning that they get is essentially they're being told to tell everyone that they can, because we don't really know who the people is that the Aiel woman was saying, like, warn the people, capital P. Okay. The Tinkers are kind of confused. They're like, I don't really know who we're supposed to tell this to, but it seems really important because they normally avoid us, so we're gonna just tell everyone, and... Rain ends up getting cut off by Elias at one point because he was like, once I saw you coming into this camp, I was like, oh, here's our answer. Finally, we'll get to know what this means because since you were, and Elias makes a quick hand motion and Rain cuts off and changes what he was going to say. He says, are a friend, you're a friend, and know many strange things. Hmm. So there's something there and Perrin ends up wondering like, what? What was Rain about to say? Like, why would Elias have any knowledge about this? But Elias says he doesn't know anything. So it doesn't matter anyway. But for some reason, Rain thought he might know. But this warning obviously sounds pretty ominous, right? Like, we have the Dark One trying to blind the eye of the world. There's the eye again. Uh, We have a reference to the Great Serpent, which I believe is just a reference to mean time. Trying to end all time, essentially. Um, And the people need to be warned, and they need to stand ready for he who comes with the dawn, which is also capitalized. And that's all we get, and everyone's still confused, and nothing else is known. Prophecy! It does sound like a prophecy. This is like Lightbringer, he who comes with the dawn, he who brings the dawn. That sounds very much like a savior, you know, I guess in this setting, Dragon Reborn type of thing. It seems like there's a lot of... There's a lot of prophecies that have to do with the Chosen One in this world. We get he who comes with the dawn. In the last chapter, when Bail Domon is talking about the Sea Folk, he says all they care about is sailing around and looking for their Koromor, their right. Chosen One. 
And then we have the prophecies of the dragon, which uh, Loghain, that, that guy who's calling himself the dragon, is trying to fulfill right now in Gildon, and he's on his way to Tyr, supposedly, to try to grab the sword from the stone. Right. It makes you think that this... Uh, prophecy or whatever you want to call it that was told to the tinkerers by the Ayo woman is this something that was also told to the Sea of Folk, was also told to Loghain. Like, is there this story going around? There's this great doom that's happening. I believe this was Stag and Lion or maybe the episode before that. You had mentioned the Ar- Arter Hawkwing. And yeah. it was like, there were two dooms, one doom that happened and one doom yet to come. It's like, is that another reference to this, this doom yet to come? That was Baalzaman saying that. That was Baalzaman, yeah. And in so the dream. I'm trying to make connections in me brain here because now I'm talking like Baal. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're after me, me trollics. But this sort of doom that's about to happen or this really bad thing that's about to happen that only can be saved by this chosen one is that story being told to a lot of different groups of people and they are are they on their own are trying to find the chosen one but they need the whole people of this world don't know they're all looking for the same thing uh i don't know it seems more connected than it may seem at this point but you're right it's interesting why would this ayul woman tell that to the tinkerers the people involved here are a little bit weird and i think that's where i was a bit frustrated by this chapter because i'm like hold the fuck on there's so much else going on like can we just take I wrote this in my notes. I was like, can we just take a moment to pause? This is a little bit too much for me to think no, about. Robert Jordan will relentlessly world build out everything because we're getting a couple degrees of separation, like we a reference are. to Aiel and the tinkerers that Elias knows, but we only met Elias like a chapter ago. Yeah. So there's a lot going on, a lot of new characters, but it will, you know, we have 14 books to get right. to know everyone, um, but it's only halfway through the first one. So it's a lot. Right, it's, yeah, right. The world building is occurring because right now we're focused on, you know, the main characters of the story, the six or eight or so. <laughs> yeah, however many. Uh, there's a lot. Well, there's the em- Emmonsfield starting five and then there's Moraine Lan and fucking thumb, whatever, him. Those groups, Tam, I guess, maybe too. Um, and then you get these world building moments that has to do with this. I guess I said die things as well and those are the parts where i'm just like okay i'm trying to grasp hold of this but i'm like at the end of end of the string i'm barely hanging on and then i end up just falling into like my safety zone which is the character moments and dialogue yeah which is also great so you know i think whether you like the lore which is something that i always love in a series or whether you love the character moments more this series has all of that for you it's got a little bit of something for everyone it's not that i don't like the lore i do love the lore that's what makes fantasy series worth reading at least a large part of it to me it's just that i'm not mentally prepared to take it all in and like really (laughs) deep down and analyze it i'm like hold on wait what's it just take away the general feeling and that's all you need for now but that kind of rounds out the chapter for me i think this ends with Perrin going to sleep at night and thinking like, uh, there's going to be time enough tomorrow to deal with the wolves. He doesn't have to worry about them right now. And then the last couple sentences were, he was wrong. They were waiting to greet him in his dreams. Yeah. So poor Perrin can't catch a break, pretty much like anyone else in this book right now. But the wolves are there. 
Yeah. No, they're there, but Perrin, just accept them because it's you. You have to accept yourself at some point, and maybe that's yeah. really the lesson. He needs to have a heart-to-heart with Nynaeve. She can, she can fill him in on how to accept himself. You know I am always ready for a Nynaeve chapter. I would love a Nynaeve chapter. Uh, as we know, next chapter, just from the audiobook, you mentioned this to me, is like an hour long, the audiobook. So it's a huge chapter. It's called White Bridge. So I can only assume... You know, they're going to be going to Whitebridge. But just to do a quick recap of the characters, Rand, Matt, and Thumb Gleeman are going to Whitebridge. That's where they're headed. Egwene, Perrin, and Elias are going to Camelin. They actually might be past Whitebridge, except way north, I think. Nynaeve, Lan, and Moraine are going to Whitebridge. So, yeah, so it would seem maybe next chapter we're getting maybe a reunion, something like that. This can be part of my predictions. I didn't have much based on this chapter other than I actually would like to check in with Moraine, which I can't believe I'm saying. Wow, that's a character moment for you. It's a character moment for me. Just to see what she's up to, I actually would be interested in that, which is weird. But if we're checking in with Moraine, we're checking in with Nynaeve. So I True, hope it makes it tolerable. So it does make good. it tolerable. So that would be that would be pretty nice. So I hope we get some some things that are occurring in Whitebridge. I would love to stay with these characters, please. I want them to talk to each other and kind of go through a full debrief on what's been going on. I would love that. Maybe it's not as interesting and action heavy, but uh, my soul needs that. So we'll see. It's an hour long. I shouldn't talk in the audiobook terms. It's a very long chapter. So I can only assume a lot is going to be happening there. Maybe we'll get some action, some dialogue, probably some more lore dump because Moraine's going to be like, back in the age of legends, the story (laughs) of the... And so we'll get... Excuse me, I'm a historian. Let me go. (laughs) Hi, I'm a librarian. If you forgot from chapter two, let me tell you the story. So... Hopefully we get all of that. But yeah, let's let's move through. I think we're officially halfway through this book. We have yeah, arrived. Feels good. I can't feels wait to good. keep going. As per usual, I guess that's it. So if you guys want to reach out to us or follow us on Twitter, we're at Copland Talk. You know, email us, coplandtalk at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Quick hello. We would love that. I especially would love if someone else is feeling the same way about the series thus far as I am. Let me know. I would Fellow enjoy that. Tom haters, reach out to us. We would love to say hi. I would love to know if anyone else uh, hates the Gleeman because my opinion on him is not changing anytime soon. And he does nothing to help himself every time he's brought up. I'm just like, why are you here? He's nothing if not consistent. All right. Yeah. So reach out to us if you hate Tom. We love you too. And we do. We'll talk to you in the next chapter. White Bridge, here we come. Bye.